0: Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippey. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have.
1: What is up on a Monday? I am Brian Scott Rippy, Thanks for tuning in another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. It is our Sunday football conversation with Weldon Rodenberg as the Rebels get what is undoubtedly their biggest win of the season, a 22-19 to 19 thriller over the Kentucky Wildcats. You probably can already guess what we talked about. Um, but I mean, just a little preview. We hit on the defense, this team's ability to make plays, the kind of these culture shifting that you can see with this program in terms of them just kind of expecting and doing what they need to do to win games like this. Um, and the rarefied air that their record over the last uh, two seasons is uh, slowly creeping up into some Jackson Dart stuff, and, of course, the fastest growing segment on American soil at the end soccer corner. So, Great show. I know everyone's probably excited after the weekend and uh, Weldon and I tried to do it justice and put a lot of it into perspective. Before we get to that though, we have a new sponsor joining the Rippy Wrights family. That's right. This content ship just continues to go to the moon as we have great people and great advertisers joining us today. It is Ray Stevens of Square Real Estate. He is a licensed realtor for the North Central Mississippi Realtors. That means he can represent a buyer looking for a house, or he can list a house for someone wanting to sell. One of the great things about doing this podcast is you can pick and choose who you advertise with. And I always want to pick people that know what they're doing, people that love to work with old Miss people, and people that love to help other people. Ray checks all three of those boxes and then some. Trust me, I wouldn't send you to people that aren't going to do a great job and they are, and that you cannot trust. I would trust Ray with my life. Great guy. Played some golf with him back in high school in the day and then, I, of course, knew him a bit in college as well he would love to have the opportunity to help you whether it's helping you sell your current home or find your future home whether it's buying or selling he's going to help you make the process easy and seamless he offers personalized service for each individual client whether that's a two-bedroom condo maybe you're looking for that uh you know football team's hot real estate Todd Knox right now maybe you're tired of uh spending money on the hotels and want to buy a uh condo here to use on the weekends, or maybe you're looking for your five bedroom dream house in Oxford. Ray Stevens is going to help you find that or sell it, whichever the one you want to do, check him out. That would be Ray Stevens. You need to give him a call at 601-624-4824 or at his broker's number 662-832-7777. That's 601-624-4824. 4824 that's his cell he'll pick right up let him know we sent you he's going to help you out i'm very glad he is joining the rippy rights podcast advertising family and the newsletter as well check him out that is ray stevens realtor for square real estate he'll get you set up if you're looking to buy or sell anything in the oxford area podcast is also brought to you by skybox sports picks who is skybox sports picks well glad you asked the world's best gambling handicapping website the inventors of the skybox matrix interval and advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Need to check these guys out. Maybe you're about a month in the season. You're bleeding money left and right. Let skybox lead you consistently to profit. They're the only way to profit in the long run. Definitely more consistently than your own brands. They're the professionals. You buy a picks package. They send it to you in a nice, easy to read email, very organized, even some color coded stuff on there and boom you have a sheet to profit from instead of that one in your head that never seems to work out. Check them out. Got skyboxsportspicks.com. Go on and find your own picks package, whether it's month-long, season-long, and try it for a week. You can even try it for a day. I'd recommend just going with the year-long all-sports pass because it's going to pay for itself and then some. Whatever you decide, go buy it. Type in the promo code RIPPEE, R-I-P-P-E-E. That's going to get you 20% off any purchase on your way to profiting already. It's really a no-brainer. skyboxsportspicks.com. All right. Here is Weldon Rodenberg on Ole Miss's biggest win of the year. All right. We're now welcome on Rippy Wright's football correspondent, former Ole Miss recruiting specialist, Weldon Rodenberg. And boy, do we finally have something interesting to talk about in terms of an actual <laughs> game scenario, right? Ole Miss wins a thriller 22 to 19 over Kentucky to move to 5-0 and for, I think, just the second time. I was actually watching the uh, the uh, 2014 Alabama game the other night. They made a comment about Ole Miss being 5-0 and for the first time in like 20 years. So clearly it's the second time since whenever that was. I'm not going to go back and look it up. Huge win. Um, a lot to unpack there, but just kind of your general thoughts. What's up? Where would you watch the game from?
0: I watched the game hot spotting on my phone to my TV while moving to a new house this, uh, this weekend in Houston. So it was kind of a pain in the butt but I was able to see basically every play while my fiance and mom helped unpack everything with the movers so I was incredibly unhelpful in that regard for them (laughs) which was fine with me um but I mean it was it was a huge win I mean it's it's the game we've been talking about for what feels like five or six months it was the one we knew that Ole Miss was going to be undefeated going into and I think kind of the the run-up to the game was all about, you know, where these two programs have been building up to, and this was kind of, you know, the meeting point of the two trajectories of both Kentucky and Ole Miss, and the game kind of played out like that. I mean, it was close. Both teams played hard. Uh, I think we'll talk about it a little bit, but there was definitely the uh, the tight butt uh, second half for both teams. <laughs> I mean, both were clearly nervous, both clearly understood how big of a game it was. And at the end of the day, it was Ole Miss who made more plays. I mean, it was a crazy ending. I, was, I had a headache after the end of it just because I was so nervous the whole time. But uh, I mean, it was a huge game for Ole Miss. I mean, that's understating it completely, obviously.
1: Yeah, and it was it was. And uh to add to the first part of that, you are uh, no one should ever question your dedication to this podcast. <laughs> as you move into the new place, you are currently not on Wi-Fi doing this on your phone. So just a man of the people, as uh I know this is one people are going to uh anticipate because uh what a wild one it was. You're right, Ole miss just made more plays. Uh, at the end of the day special teams was a huge factor in this game you know Ole Miss wasn't really perfect in that regard by any stretch right I don't for whatever reason they decided to just stop doing the whole thing where they kick it through the end zone and uh, the team starts at the 25 instead they elected to sky kick it and give Kentucky short fields multiple times but then you look on the other side of it Kentucky was a disaster on special teams I mean you had a blocked PAT you had one that looked like it was either a bad snap or a bad hold, you had a kick out of bounds um, for Kentucky. There was just all kinds of different gaffes they had on the special team side. So while Ole Miss wasn't perfect in that regard, they were certainly better than Kentucky. Um, And Kentucky just didn't look, you got to give credit to Ole Miss on this as well. But Kentucky just didn't do the things you need to do to go on the road in particular and win a game like that. They were bad on special teams. They had multiple turnovers. It's really hard to go beat any sort of team in the SEC when you do that. Certainly one that's been as good as Ole Miss has been at home But, like, I know there's a lot of rhetoric about how Ole Miss played versus how Kentucky played or blah, blah, blah. I think the simple fact of it is, one, you give Ole Miss some credit for, you know, making those plays. But, two, Kentucky, you can't win on games on the road in this league doing that. They just made way too many mistakes. It was a very even game otherwise.
0: No, I've seen that narrative floating around that, you know, Kentucky was the better team. They should have won. They choked. and. You know, part of that, I, I can understand. I mean, they, they had the ball to win the game, but, you know, they didn't do it. <laughs> it's really as simple as that. I mean, I, you watched the, the Auburn-LSU game last night, and Auburn's up 17-0. to And, you know, LSU wins because Auburn turned the ball over five times. I mean, you just don't win SEC football games like that. Kentucky did it, you know. On that Levis play, which was you know a really crazy play that was fortunate, but then on the next play they just couldn't block, and that was kind of you know you see things like Kentucky struggling on the offensive line. You know it builds, it, it, it you know creates like really difficult plays for them, and when you are really bad throughout the entire game, eventually it's going to kill you. It was their Achilles heel going into the season, and on their biggest play of the season, it, it, it burnt them. Uh, so I, I understand why some people are saying that, but you know on the flip side. The Kentucky offense really did absolutely nothing the entire day. I mean, we almost gave them two short fields off of Barry and Brown kickoff returns. Uh, I mean, we threw an interception. They didn't really do anything off of that, but they they never really had, except for maybe once, an actually sustained drive. Um, their play calling was really, really vanilla. I mean, like what I meant, you know, the tight tight butthole. I mean, that was the way they called the entire game, really. I mean, they looked so, so nervous fundamentally on offense. Uh, Levis, I mean, all the talk about him, I mean, I, I still think he's a really good player. You could see, I mean, some of the throws he made were ridiculous. Some of those tight window throws, some ones over the middle, but – you know, some of his weaknesses showed up as well with him holding on the ball too long, forcing things, uh, not really using his legs when he probably could and using them maybe when he shouldn't. Um, so, yeah, I, I Ole Miss made enough plays and Kentucky's weaknesses that we talked about and that everyone's talked about really showed up to haunt them towards the end.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right on that. And you talk about Kentucky not doing much offensively. I was actually, as you were saying that, pulling up both teams' drive charts on the stat broadcasting. They look somewhat similar, but, like, Kentucky had, you know, six plays, ten yards, 2-15, five for negative one, one for negative one. I guess that was right for half, four for seven. Like, they didn't sustain much success. until there was one no. drop that they got, Um, I guess, in the second quarter in which they scored their – was that an initial touchdown? This is saying nine plays, 70 yards. That can't be right. I thought they had the short field when they scored the touchdown. Um, they did
0: when, when Rodriguez played – it was five play, you know, twelve yard drive to score that's that touchdown after all of us went up fourteen nothing is Brown took the kickoff back to the ten. So
1: oh this is the I'm last forgetting stop half. This is what I was looking at. That's right. So they had one in the first half and then you're right. They didn't really have another one with sustained success again until the last two to end the game, right? The first fumble was 11 plays, 74 yards. They looked like they were finally moving it. I don't know if that was some old miss fatigue. Maybe they finally, finally figure something out offensively being Kentucky, but kind of to that narrative, they didn't really do a whole lot. Um, You know, I, I was watching part of the game today, a second time, and I, I didn't necessarily come away with the fact that the play calling was well, vanilla is probably a good way to put it. It didn't seem like, and I don't, I don't know if they were scared to death of Ole Miss's defensive line or the opportunities weren't there. They didn't give Levis a ton of opportunities to chuck the football down the field and really drive it in the vertical passing game. And so that's probably no. kind of where some of that vanilla nature came from. Granted, they got Chris Rodriguez back. I know they wanted to give him the football, but. Do yeah. you think Understandably,
0: he- by the way, <laughs> I mean, that guy's an absolute unit. I mean, he's tough. He's, he's really, really good. Really good.
1: Yeah, yeah. That was very unfortunate timing that he comes back to that game this week, but clearly, you know, scouts love Levis. You know, all the narrative around Kentucky all off season was kind of like, you know, they're going to open it up, right. They went and got a, uh, Scangarello or whatever, Scaringello, I always forget how you say it, but the McVay tree guy to open up the offense. It's, it's, it doesn't seem like it's something that they don't trust Levis. Do you think they were just kind of scared of Ole Miss's defensive line and in turn their own offensive line? Because this was a Kentucky team that had given up 16 sacks in four games and they'd only coming in and they'd only played one real opponent. So it, I, w- I guess I'm answering my own question here, but it seemed like more to me that they didn't think the opportunities would be there and they were maybe a little scared to drop back versus a trusting Levis thing.
0: I really think they were just petrified of their own offensive line. Um, I mean, yeah, the Ole Miss defensive line played well, but I don't think they went into the game, you know, just scared out of their minds about that. They just clearly did not trust their own players. I mean, there was really very little effective play action pass. I mean, they were – Ole Miss was selling out on Rodriguez in the run so much. You know, I was on the phone with Siski, like, watching the game in a group text, and he was like, Kentucky has the bootleg anytime they want it. And they really never – Once ran it, no wide zone, you know, play action uh, out of the shotgun. It was, you know, pretty, pretty simple stuff. I I really was not overly impressed with with their offensive game plan, but I do think a lot of it was, you know, them counteracting their ability to really run the ball effectively and protect Levis effectively. So they were like, we got to get the ball out of his hands quick, you know, no long uh, extending plays, and you know that was really helpful for the Ole Miss defense because they didn't have to really make a, a whole lot of adjustments. I mean, Kiffin said after the game they really didn't sub a lot of players because Kentucky goes so slow, and that just plays into the hands of Ole Miss. So you can keep your first team out there, your guys fresh. I mean, that's that's huge for them. Uh, so, I mean, they their opportunities came because Ole Miss couldn't tackle Barry and Brown, and that was literally it. They did absolutely nothing really ever in the game except for off of those two plays. But, I mean, that's football. you got to take advantage of it. It did. But, yeah, offensively, I, you got to feel Mark Stoops is just like, this is so typical. We have the best weapons and the best back end we've had since we've been here. But this is the worst team in the trenches that we've had. It's like if this is just flip-flop for one year. I mean, if, if they had the teams of, you know, last year or two years, you know, in the trenches, this is like a – I don't want to say national championship team, but it's like a team that could be Georgia. For sure. They're a contender. They're much more real. But this year they're so, I mean, truly just weak on both sides in the trenches and they're not deep. And it killed them in this game. And Ole Miss took advantage of it for, you know, basically four quarters.
1: Yeah, they, they really did. And to, to that point, I mean, I got it up here. I mean, you had Robinson, the Virginia Tech transfer. He led them with four catches, but it was only for a net of 16 yards. And then it was three from Chris Rodriguez. Their Barry and Brown had a couple in there. But it was a lot of, you know, they lined Robinson up in the backfield a couple of times. It was a lot of script, yep. a little bit of quick-hitting misdirection. I think they really were terrified of their own offensive line. And, you know, not to go too far in the weeds on Kentucky, because the story is more here Ole Miss, but I do think that was surprising to them a little bit. Um, you know, from talking to uh the guy at GoBigBlueCountry.com twice now, one in the season preview once for the game, I think they thought they had a pretty veteran unit. Now there was some turnover there, but I don't think they thought this was going to be some deficiency. And it certainly has. It was, you know, the tea leaves in terms of that being a weakness were there before this game and Ole Miss exposed it for the entirety of the afternoon culminating in that final play and you know sometimes on this podcast I'm bad about burying in the lead like we'll get to tell you a number of different topics we should probably start with Jared Ivey and the way that game ended and particularly the last <laughs> two drives look it wasn't a thing of beauty the game was not a work of art but you're starting to see a team and a program that wins these games they kind of just always win them. Not literally every time, but like, I mean, hell, they're 15 and three in the last 18 games. They haven't had a ton of blowouts there. They're you're sensing like a culture shift. Um, It seems like they expect to win these kind of games and, you know, whatever you want to make of, you know, Kentucky turning it over twice, Ole Miss forced both of those turnovers. Those were both really good plays by two good defensive players and it won them a football game. And that's, that's something I don't think we've seen from Ole Miss really in the freeze era as well when they were good they didn't always have a great track record when the games came down late but they just seemed to make enough plays to win the game every time now i don't know if that's a kiffin thing i don't know if that's a program culture thing what would you kind of attribute that to because it's its plain as day listening to guys talk they kind of expect to do this now they expect the best yeah. outcome outcome to happen And just from talking to people in the Grove yesterday, you're also starting to sense it in the fan base. They're like, wow, that's three or four of these Arkansas last year, Tennessee, a couple others like Ole Miss is actually winning these things. What's going on? It's like a foreign feeling to the fans. But you can definitely tell it in the way the players kind of go about their business as well. And you saw it again on Saturday.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a, a football cliche, but teams and programs kind of have to learn how to win. And, you know, once you kind of get past that and over that hump, it, it gives you a, a confidence that you didn't know you had or you were working to, all the summer all year to gain. And I think guys on this team that have been here for a few years ha- have learned that. And then you're seeing Kiffin go grab some kids out of the portal with the right makeup and mindset that believe that he can, you know, put them in this program and have them have that same belief and mindset. I mean, I think, you know, after the game, listening to Heath talk, listening to Ivy talk, uh, I mean, these guys are like, they were the kind of guys they wanted to bring in, guys who have played a lot of football, guys who can you know, just ingrain themselves in the culture they're trying to build. And when you have a lot of guys like that, they're really talented with that buy-in that now, you know, won this, won these kinds of games. I mean, it kind of snowball, it's a snowball effect. And, you know, it's coming out in a positive end. And I think, with the exception of maybe like LSU in 2020, like they've won almost all of these close, you know, coming down in the last few plays games and they're just making more plays than the other team. It's as simple as that, but it's it's kind of coming from that belief that you talk about of learning how to win and being a, being a part of these kinds of games.
1: Yeah. And you're exactly right. And I, I don't know like how, how that turns, uh, you know, I know, I know in some senses, like you weren't necessarily doing like on field stuff every Saturday, but do you think some of that is just a, you know, you mentioned when you learn how to win games and that being a cliche, do you think some of that is just being in that moment when you don't, you know, you haven't done it yet, maybe there's a bit of paralysis or a little bit of insecurity or fear or whatever the case may be about actually being able to do it on the game's biggest you know, stages and crucial moments of a game where you now kind of have some older guys on this team that have won a couple of these like this to where they just kind of have the experience doing it. And so I imagine it's probably just kind of easier to, I guess, lock in that moment, if that makes any sense at all.
0: No. Yeah. Well, I think this is the first time in a long time that Ole Miss has had a defense they can kind of hang their hat on. They They don't have to, you know, gimmick anything in play calling and Kiffin doesn't have to gimmick anything on offense. He doesn't have to Go for it on fourth down every single time. He still will, but I, I think it's just the confidence they have in the players and you know the the style of offense and defense that they've they've you know kind of built here. A lot of focus on the running game and defense, and that kind of shows up every single day. Uh, so I think that kind of confidence, the the way they built this team, you know, gives them the ability to be pretty multiple do different things without having to really press. You know, they can play base defense and be confident. They can play, you know, just four down, running the ball, forming an offense and be confident. They haven't really done a great job of it, but they can still do it. Um, So I think that kind of just culminates in being confident in what you're doing. And the players can feel that when the coaches are confident in what they're trying to get accomplished.
1: And the Ivy play, you know, everyone wanted to talk about. There was kind of that funny moment when the game was at its tensest. The uh, Ole Miss got Ole Missed by the whole fake injury thing. Um, I actually kind of have a little bit of a different theory on it because it was happening in, toward that in the end zone I was sitting in. So you had the kid go out with cramps, right? He gets on the ground. You saw the other player kind of like telling him to go down. I don't know if they caught they caught that on television. Um, one offensive of
0: They kind of did. I mean, he had real cramps, though. Yeah, I will say that. <laughs> so that's what
1: I was getting back. The theory, like, immediately after the game, without one, without going to uh, watch it again, but two, a lot of people are like, can you believe that guy faked an injury? And I'm sitting there thinking, even in the moment, like, well, if you were trying to fake an injury, why would you not just fall down yourself? Why would the other – like, why would that guy tell another dude to do it instead of doing it himself? Whereas it seemed like actually a situation where the guy had cramps. He was trying to get off the field on his own – but the other guy realized, like, hey, no, if you if you're actually kind of hurt, like, go down. We would we could benefit from this, but it wasn't a fake injury per se. That was kind of the read I had on it.
0: Yeah, no, I don't think it was a fake injury on TV. I mean, the guy's leg was like completely straight with the braces on. I mean, he was he was actually struggling. Um, and it, it's it's tough to say like who it really benefits. Obviously, Kentucky is is working against the clock, but also. Ole Miss. A lot of these guys played a lot of snaps, so the ability to kind of gather yourself uh, and then keep you know, get on get on with it on that drive was important as well. Of course, if they just you know if Ishimio just tackles Barry and Brown right there, it's probably a completely different story, and we may not have the dramatic ending. But yeah, I, it wasn't really a big deal. It, it happens.
1: Well, the reason I bring that up is, is I believe that was their starting right tackle, wasn't that flax. And so he had to come out of the football game, and you heard oh, you heard Jared okay. Ivey talk at the end of the game. He said, no, they identified that as soon as he had to come out of the game. That's a fresh right tackle, and a kid that had not played all game and Ivy just whipped him on that play. And so, you know, you talk about who it worked in favor of. It, it Clearly, you know, it didn't you know, seem that way in the initial moment, but it worked in the favor of Ole Miss. They put one of their best pass rushers up against that kid who had come in cold, not played all game, and Ivy just whipped him and got straight to Levis' No, yeah, and game. it was
0: – yeah, no, you're exactly right. I didn't actually – I didn't think about that. But the, the last play was weird because they had the tight end chip Ivy. And right. when he chipped Ivy, it actually, like – Screwed up the offensive lineman's set, and he like just completely missed because um, like he he was like setting inside, and then the the tight end chips him, but like doesn't really get a lot of them. So he's expecting him to chip him inside where he's going to set to, and he just really didn't get much of an Ivy. Just completely speed rushed into the outside and, and smacked Levis's hand. So it was kind of a, like a really weird play where it should you know kind of neutralize the rush but it actually ended up helping Ole Miss and Ivy on that play
1: and the big things and the small things you think about over the course of a football game like is the play calling different do they call a play where they go try to chip on the right side if you have the starter flax in versus right. whatever that poor kid is what was the is it 64 74 I couldn't remember who it was it doesn't really matter I think it was uh Wall ball, however, you say that kid's name. But I was trying to get to the bottom of that one earlier. But you think about these small things over the course of a football game. Kentucky's in great position there. I know Ole Miss got bailed out a little bit with the illegal procedure, illegal motion on the play before. But do they run a play where they have to chip with the tight end or something like that if it's the starter in the game? And, you know, again, Ole Miss clearly took advantage of it. Um, But you're right. That probably does not get to that point if they make a tackle on Barry and Brown. But You know, I thought Ole Miss could hold off Kentucky. I thought they really needed a touchdown in the second half, hot take there, to really kind of put the game away, and they never got it. But I think – I guess what I'm getting at is the only time I really thought, like, (laughs) okay, Kentucky's actually about to find a way to steal this was after that Barry and Brown play. Yeah. So goes down the sideline. That was the only point where I was like – oh, crap, they might actually lose this thing because Kentucky hadn't done a ton offensively, as you covered, but they did have intermediate success running the football. I believe he got down to the four-yard line. Is that correct? Like the six or the four, somewhere in that mix? He, he was
0: inside the ten. I'm not sure what yard line it was.
1: That's pretty – I mean, that's that's basically three tries running Chris Rodriguez or some sort of gimmick misdirection, I imagine. And, you know, the odds yeah. of them getting that I thought would be pretty strong. That was really the only moment where I was like, oh, God, Ole Miss might actually kind of squander this one away. Um, I don't know about you. I don't know if it hit at any other point. But even on the first drive, I was like, they'll hold for a field goal here, I think. And then Cruz just nails a 50-something yarder in the game. So I was like, "Oh, Miss actually will probably come back down. Like like, he was born to
0: do it. I mean, my God.
1: (laughs) Hopefully he does not get drug tested anytime soon. Uh, But hopefully there is no issue there as well. But I guess my point being is just that was really the only time where I was like, oh, shit, they might actually
0: be in trouble here. It, it was a weird game. I, I really do believe. I mean, Ole Miss goes up 14 nothing on Quinchon Judkins' run. And, I mean, if they just tackle Barry and Brown anywhere around the 30-yard line when they had four guys around them, I'm not so sure that game isn't a blowout. I mean, they sustained no drives. They were doing absolutely nothing. Ole Miss was flying around. If they get another three and out right there, and they get another really good field position to start the next drive, I I really do think that game could have been over really, really quickly. I mean, Ole Miss is not necessarily mistakes, but, I mean, just – I mean, yeah, I guess they are really are special teams' mistakes with Brown. I mean, really kept Kentucky in that game, and you kind of circle back to what we talked about in the beginning of the idea that Kentucky was the better team and they gave it away. It's just, like, really not true. If anything, Ole Miss gave them opportunities to stay in the game.
1: I thought there were multiple chances where Ole Miss could have kind of issued a kill shot. And like you mentioned, when this game running, running away, it wasn't able to happen. You know, one of them was not getting the touchdown when they went for two, I and mean, they went for it on fourth down instead to kick the field goal to make it six. We can get to that call and the decision in a second. But, like, that was an opportunity. And then the other one was the one you're talking about. Right before halftime, that drive that Kentucky scored on, their second touchdown drive that we were trying to figure out which one it was a second ago, that was a huge drive in that game because – you know, with the way that game was going, if Ole Miss had kind of gotten another three and out, maybe added another field goal and say it was 19-6 or whatever versus what it became, uh, I guess that was, what, 19-12 at halftime? Kentucky got the ball after half, and that felt like that really settled them in, whereas if yeah. Ole Miss could have gotten one more stop, I was kind of with you at that point. I thought that Ole Miss might kind of run away with this thing because Kentucky just hadn't done a whole lot offensively, and they just there were several moments in that game I thought Ole Miss can really take control here, and they just weren't able to do that. And before we kind of get to the offensive side of it, the last thing, though, you know, they talk about the transfer portal and the impact guys Ole Miss has had. Ivy's a prime example of that. Is he not? He's a guy that they identified. Had you heard of Jared Ivy much until this year when they got him? I didn't hear much of him. You know, I'll, clearly I'm not locked into ACC football in Georgia Tech, but he wasn't a household name buddy stretch. And they went and identified him. They went and got him. He's a contributor, and he made the biggest play of the game. I just think that's another testament to what they've been able to do with the new rules and the changing landscape of college football. It worked out and was on full display again on Saturday in that win.
0: Yeah, I remember Ivy from recruiting, actually. He was he was part of some of those early Jeff Collins classes where it looked like, damn, like Georgia Tech is, you know, they're, they're really building something there. I mean, they, Tech had like one or two classes in a row of getting guys like – like Ivy, like Jameer Gibbs, like the quarterback Jeff Sims, who hasn't really, you know, developed into what some people thought he could be, but uh, some really solid players, some really good talented players. Um, so I, mean, I didn't really watch him much at Georgia Tech, but I, I, he did. clearly had a pretty good impression on the staff. Watching one film, he was always in high school was just you know a long but really skinny kid. He's really filled out. I mean, he's really a complete player. He's he's the dream of what you want playing that three down lineman, a guy that can rush the passer, but is thick enough and long enough to handle, you know, the run game as well. And he, he's been great. He, he's been a huge addition. We've talked about how like the depth in the defensive line is so much better than it has been recently. And when you've got a rotation of him and Tanius Robinson and Cedric Johnson, and, you know, there's a few others that get in there as well. I mean, that's just huge. And, you know, against Kentucky where you don't even have to rotate them, you've got that kind of skill set out there for the majority of the game that can be really, really tough for other teams.
1: Yeah, it is. And that's a great point. And, you know, it speaks to the depth piece of it that they hadn't had in years past because I imagine it would probably be more difficult at times last year. You almost know, had some difficulties generating a pass rush late in games when Williams would have to come out for a blow or Cedric Johnson. They didn't have that rotation or just the sheer fact that they had to play more snaps and couldn't come out where they felt a little bit fresher for four quarters. And I think that was one of the first times you've seen that on display there um yeah you talked about ivy he uh i talked to him for that nil thing uh, back in the summer he was a lightly recruited kid he is exactly what you said just very long athletic lanky basketball player but just too skinny and he mentioned when he got to georgia tech that first year um i think he played if i remember correctly a little bit more than he was originally anticipating struggled a bit but he said in that first year he got so much stronger and his body kind of came in and uh I say came in, filled out more, and he became a really good player. And you know, Ole Miss identified him. Um, they got him. I didn't really know what to make of it. Again, when they got him, I hadn't heard much about him, but clearly another impact guy there. I guess, you know, if we talk a lot about the defense, so kind of a final encompassing thought before we get to the offensive side, it feels like for fans in particular, at least the interactions with the ones I have, it's still weird for them to have a team and program that's built around the defense and win games because of your defense. And I feel like some of that's <laughs> exacerbated in the offensive struggles at times, but There's no doubt about it. Right. I mean, this is a team that the strength of its team for the last, you know, 13 months or so um, ever since really after that Arkansas game last year has been its defense. And they've won multiple games in that span and were in the uh, Sugar Bowl, even though they didn't win to the end because of that defense. You're seeing a shift in how the program's being built. And I feel like it's still kind of a weird sight for some people as well.
0: I can understand. I mean, especially <laughs> coming off that 2020 team, which maybe was like the worst defense in college football history. And I'm not, you know, exaggerating. I, I was there. I saw it. It, it was absolutely terrible. Uh,
1: and if you're and, talking about other one seeds for that title, 2018, too, they've watched a couple of them through the years.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you know, you you had a few choices there, which is never great. But uh, I mean, it just it just makes the game a lot more enjoyable. I mean, not only are they talented, but I mean, they they play incredibly hard. They are good at every level. They maybe not be great at any level, but they are really good at every level. And uh, I'm not I'm not sure you know what the ceiling is. You know how much better they can get, more complete. I still think there's some, some tackling that can you know improve here and there. Um, but I mean, it's hard to be disappointed so far. I mean, they've played um, just so so well. They've kept this team um, really from. Two, I mean, uh, two potential losses. I mean, if Tulsa goes really sideways. You really never know. But the defense made plays when they had to, and they had made plays, and they had to again. And this has been, like you said, eight or nine games in a row of this defense being the the bell cow for the team, and that's really never a bad thing.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's certainly not. And I do think there are probably some deficiencies, as you just outlined. Some of the tackling was not great altogether. But man, they continued to make plays. Um, time after time in the second half, and you know the two biggest examples were those last two drives. Let's kind of shift to the offensive side of the football a little bit. Is another game where you look at the numbers and it doesn't feel like it told the entire story with Dart, but I thought you also got a very Dart-esque game. You had some really nice throws. He looked a little more decisive, but you also had a couple of very poor decisions, and then you had a couple instances where his receivers didn't help him out much. Um, by any stretch he finishes the game I was trying to pull it up make sure i it write 15 of 29 for 213 and a pick I think they average a little over 14 yards a completion what did you think of how he played from my vantage point it just seemed like a mixed bag again but did enough things obviously to do enough to win the game
0: yeah I think mixed bag is is probably the best way to say it uh, he he made some throws that you know make you understand why he's the starting quarterback. He made him early. He made him late. I mean, I think that throw, the one to Heath was ridiculous that he caught but really didn't catch. Um, But then the other throw to Heath on, like, that in-cutting route uh, on, like, third and ten in, like, the second quarter through, like, three guys was amazing. Now, the bad part about that is that he forces that throw a lot. And he was lucky early in the game not to get picked off two or three times um, and then, of course, eventually he he made the mistake going the two-minute again and, and got picked off. Um, you know, I think Kiffin's really giving him a, a solid leash and has seemed his to be pretty positive with them. You know, even after the halftime, he's like, look, it's a young quarterback. He did it again. But uh, he's played well for us. I mean, it's literally what he said. He's like, "Yeah, he did it again." <laughs> the minutes, it's it's hilarious, the isn't offense. it?
1: The fact that like we've had multiple times this year, we've talked about this, where literally sometimes the way Kiffin talks about him, it does sound like if someone interviewed you after your puppy pissed on the couch again, and be like, "Yep, I don't really know what to say. We're trying to get him better, but he did do it again."
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's like a perfect analogy. Um, but I mean, he he, I thought he played fine. I, I think we can talk about the biggest issue with this offense in a second, but. Dart, I mean, he, he's kind of managing games. He's making plays when he needs to make plays. I um, mean, Kentucky's a tough defense to deal with. He didn't have a lot of running room. He, you know, he wasn't too super effective with his legs because I'm sure they accounted for that. Um, but he did what he needed to do. I think the, the pick was tough. Um, I, I really think he's struggling on some of these deep balls. I mean, they're really not that close, I think, on the other hand. To play devil's advocate the receivers are just not breaking open downfield very much unless it's kind of these overarching you know across the field routes um but i mean like he won the game he didn't make the crucial error um so i, I give him a, a b minus he, he did what he needed to do
1: i think b minus is probably a pretty fair grade another point on that that's something i noticed too on some of those deep balls, you're right. They don't look close at all, but there's from the way I was sitting this weekend, I could see it on a couple of them just because I'm sitting at one end zone and they're running at you, or even when they're running away, you can tell really clearly. It's one of the few benefits of kind of sitting in that area of the stadium is the fact that they aren't. It looks like they're break receivers being they breaking the wrong way. A lot of the time, what's the football is thrown? And Malik Heath had had it. He, I thought he played a pretty good game, but it did happen to him a couple of times. What is that just a lack of chemistry thing? Like when it seems like they are not on the same page in terms of the where, which side dart puts, dart puts the ball on versus where they break. Like, how does that get better? What goes into that?
0: I mean, it could be just a route thing where, you know, the, the receiver is supposed to run like a post, you know, a corner post and, you know, hit him in the middle of the goalpost going down the field and dart leads them out too far to the left. Um, or he's supposed to run a skinny post and dart leads him too far out to the right. You know, I, I'm not necessarily sure it's a chemistry thing or more of an understanding on like where, you know, we're actually aiming to throw the football on play. Cause you know, not all posts are the same, not all routes down the field are just, you know, get open down the middle. Sometimes they're trying to aim to get to a certain spot. They might be trying to cross the goalpost. They might be trying to stay on the, on the right side of it, the left side of it, depending on what side the receiver is on. And I've noticed I think in the Tulsa game, it was pretty clear that, you know, Mingo was running across the goalposts on a, on a go route at Dart for like 10 yards behind him to the right. And you kind of see Dart like, oh, shit, like maybe that was supposed to be going across the field on that route. Or or Mingo either read it incorrectly, like he read the safety, did something different, or Dart read the safety incorrectly. So I, I don't think it's necessarily a chemistry between the, the receiver and the quarterback, more like an actual – you know, function of the play call and the route and the read. Uh, it, it's been pretty clear that two or three different times throughout some of these games, they've just like completely missed it. Uh, I don't know who it was on, but it pretty clearly missed it. And then, you know, I guess the main issue I have with a lot of it is just the, the receivers are just not getting over the top. The the, the DBs are beating them at the spot. The safeties are beating them at the spot. They're not you know, faking him out enough or just not fast enough. It's one or the other. Um, and it hasn't killed him yet, but that, the, the way the run game has been so dynamic, you're going to have those opportunities. And they just really have not been able to hit them.
1: Malik Heath finishes, I believe, six catches right out of 100 yards. I know something we did talk about last week was, um, you know, the fact that they haven't had a possession receiver, a guy that makes six, seven catches and kind of makes his impact on the game. I know we talked about some of, you know, Heath's, Heath's mistakes when it comes to that piece of it but I thought he did play pretty well and it did look like you know when they really needed it dart looked at him a couple times um he made a nice catch over by the sideline he almost had another one that I still didn't fully understand how that wasn't a catch and the one Kentucky had was where the ball went away but also couldn't get a decent replay when the ball squirted out late I should say but also didn't have a div- decent replay but he did catch uh six balls 100 yards um 39 yards after contact which is pretty good and so for a team that's not beating guys over the top they're at least remotely productive from that standpoint outside of that it wasn't much you had three catches from trig um you had two from watkins and it was just a whole big mixed bag of different guys after that with one catch um would you say it's improved? Do you think the passing and the whatever you want to call it, the chemistry, whatever it is, between the receivers and dart, do you think the passing game has improved through five games? Because I don't necessarily know what I think. I think the answer is slightly yes. It's not where it needs to be. But it's been difficult to gauge. Um, and this was another time where I didn't know what to make of it. There were some really good moments and some really bad
0: ones. I, I think it's tough to say that they've liked dramatically improved um, I, I feel like dart is definitely more confident in what they're doing from game one till now uh, I just think the plays aren't being made uh the receivers aren't getting open or dart's missing the read or you know whatever it may be uh, so there's parts of it that have been better I think I think dart is slowly but surely improving uh, I think at this point the receivers kind of are the receivers you know Mingo is willing is fully capable of having a breakout game here and there but you know, if he can't get open or, or Dark doesn't get the ball to him when he is open, it really doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, I obviously, you know, I said last week and I feel pretty vindicated this week. You're not getting anything out of Jalen Robinson this season. Um, I, I feel pretty confident on that one. Um, so, I mean, the Heat stepped up. We talked about who would be the second guy to step up. I think Heath was that. He was the number one on Saturday. Uh, so, I think there's room, plenty of room for improvement. Uh, I think the offensive line protection wise was much better Um, for whatever reason that was. I think Michael Pettis kind of made his start and played the majority of the game. And that's one big, big, big man. So that was great to see. So from that standpoint, they were much better. But I'm not sure the connection with Dart and receivers has really improved too much.
1: Kentucky really held Jonathan Mingo up. He had just the one catch for, I think it was only like three yards. He was targeted six times, but they did struggle to consistently get him the football. You know, I don't know if that's a product of what Kentucky did or just it not working out. I don't really know. I don't don't know. (laughs) don't know. know. Too overly eccentric with it. But again, that is a good defense on that side for Kentucky as well. I know you probably wanted to get to the offensive line piece of it. This is a game where you look at it, I'll Miss rushes for 186 yards, I believe. I'm going to make sure that's net. They did not allow a sack, unless I have this wrong, but I didn't also leave there thinking they played a terrific game, which they protected him, but they definitely were good enough to win. How do you think they played?
0: I, I think they played much better than they have. Uh, I mean, Kentucky, ha- I mean, they, they were missing J.J. Weaver, but that that Wright kid, I think he's like Jordan Wright or something yeah. like that. I mean, he's a hell of a football player. And, you know, he made himself very known in the run game. But uh, they really – I thought they protected Dart really well. Uh, I, I thought that line was probably the best game they've had. And, you know, they, the Kentucky defensive line, you know, they had some athletes, but it's definitely not their best that they've had. But I thought the interior offensive line played a lot better. I thought the tackles – I mean, they're they're starting two freshmen, that tackle. I mean, only them and LSU. There can't be many other teams in the country doing that. Um, and I thought they held up really, really well. I mean, the run blocking was fine. Uh, I mean, like I, I mentioned earlier, I mean, the biggest issue obviously is, is the snapping and the center play. I mean, it it's really, this entire offense is completely out of whack because of it. I think the passing game is messed up because of it. I think the run game is screwed up because of it. I think darts reads are messed up because of it. There, the tempo is messed up because of it. I mean, it is the single biggest thing holding back what they're doing is kind of what I was alluding to earlier when I was saying, when we get to it, but that. That aspect of the offensive line it has been horrible. Everything else I thought on Saturday was great. Yeah, so take me through that piece
1: of it because you had that. That was really, I thought, a very – I don't know if they were covering it much on TV, but a very interesting but felt kind of like a silent subplot is I thought that uh, Warren started the game. Maybe I was wrong about that because I texted Chase on, like, the game's third drive and just said, hey, what's going on up there? Why is Pettison? And then Chase said Warren did not play, like assuming I guess he wasn't going to play the – the rest of the game, but then he comes back in and they, they you know, this all revolves he around did. the snapping issue. It's funny, you know, football is such a complicated game in many ways. And, you know, you don't, you don't really think about the fact that actually, if you know, you can't start a play by hiking it successfully between your legs to the quarterback, that's actually a big problem um that you should probably get fixed and it screws up everything else you're trying to do. What do you think they do there? And then kind of take me through yeah. what was the – I don't know how much TV addressed it. What was the deal with the Warren situation? Was he just trying to give it a go because he was hurt and Acker wasn't working out either? What happened there? Because I watched the game. I, the I the think
0: – I, I, I thought Acker started at center.
1: Okay, they, then you're probably right. I just missed it. I was trying to catch all of them out there, but I didn't – I thought I got him, but maybe it was just wrong And that Pettis did start and Acker was at center to start the game.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I kind of talked about this on the board when someone was asking a question about it. I responded, you know, when you're recruiting and building an offensive line with with prospects and and players, you don't really recruit centers, like a center-only player, because there's only so many programs in the country where you have a guy that's playing center on that offensive line that's like, yeah, this is what he's going to play at the next level. You know, there might be 10 – in the entire country every year that are like elite center only prospects. You recruit guards and tackles, and eventually you kind of groom a guy that, you know, fits that position and, and you kind of grow his ability to play center. You know, you've got to understand where the mic's at. You've got to help get everyone in line. And of course you has got to snap the ball. Well, Eli Acker was brought in to play tackle and that's where he started. And then Caleb Warren was, you know, recruited to play guard or maybe right tackle and, you know, now he's – they're both playing snaps at center. I mean, it's not – it seems like it should be a super easy thing to do. And I think, in a vacuum it is. Snap the ball to the quarterback and block. But if you haven't played that position a lot and, you know, neither of them really have, you it's a lot. I mean, you got to snap it while focusing on where you're blocking. You know, maybe you have to pull. Maybe you're moving or you know, squeezing a guy or going down on a guy that's that's pretty far in front of you. You know, it's, it's a lot to it. And they, they have not figured it out. I mean, they're going to have to find uh, a remedy to this issue because, you know, they do a lot of that with, you know, Watkins and JJ coming in jet motion, and the snap is like getting there in three seconds. So the defense is not even considering the jet because the snap is so slow that the guy's already passed him like 10 yards. And then, you know, they're, it's a slow mesh. And then by that time, yeah, you know, the defensive line is already in the backfield. And when you're doing tempo and you're running and running and running, just that one, you know, half a second, split second of the snap is the difference between uh, offensive lineman making a block and reaching a guy or, you know, getting beat and the running back not having a hole. And they've just had no consistency with that. And I think it's really what has been killing them in the second half is, you know, the, the whoever's center is worn or after, you know, you're getting tired, you're getting beat up, you're playing a lot. And then you just get a little complacent with the snaps and it just keeps happening over and over again. And uh, it, it is single handedly the thing that's holding this team back from reaching its potential in offense, in my opinion.
1: It really is. And you made and it it's really so wrong.
0: simple. It's like it's so simple, it, but it, it really it's not. It, it's it like is simple, it but it's not.
1: Yeah, it's at a certain point. It's not a simple fix. Like, yeah, you know what you have to do, but that doesn't mean like, okay, we'll just get someone else in there. I've talked to uh, Nick Broker about this a couple
0: of times. I just asked him. This oh my is- god, I have a story. I have a story about Nick. Uh, you, you say what you're saying, and I'll tell you what Nick. Yeah, well, sir, maybe he just- told he told you what he what I saw one time.
1: <laughs> Snapping in practice is that what it was? Is that what? Oh my
0: god. So we were it was it was a scrimmage. And he, I mean, I might be stealing your story, but we put him in there for a scrimmage because like we just didn't have enough offensive line. This was in 2020. And we're like, all right, broker, like, you know, you might be our third team center. Let's go take some snaps. When I tell you he rolled the ball back to the quarterback three plays in a row. I mean, it was like not they had to just redo the entire drive. Like, all right. Get him out of there. We'll put in you know, a walk-on at center because that was just absolutely unacceptable. I mean, it, it's, it is a learned skill. It is not necessarily the easiest thing to point out where you're blocking, tell the guards where to go, snap the ball, and then, you know, get your damn head up so you don't get your ass kicked. I mean, it, it's – and Broker was – it was, like, literally laughable the first three times he tried it.
1: So that's exactly what I was going to get at, but that was also (laughs) the perfect filler to it. So even before it became like a massive issue, I was just asking him about the different positions he played, blah, 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 the different parts of the offensive line. And I'd asked him if he had ever taken, I can't remember if we got this on a podcast or I was talking to him before, but be that as it may, whatever. I asked him about it and he said he had practiced it a couple of times throughout practices um throughout the years but obviously he'd never done it in a game and then he did mention this said it sounds like infamous now scrimmage where he did try it a couple of times in a scrimmage I think he described it as not going well um he may not have uh you know, properly <laughs> sold just how bad it was but you see the guy like that who's a three-year left tackle you know going to play in the NFL at guard and you know it's hard for him to do it like you mentioned it's a learned skill but that's why I was bringing it up that was the perfect like filler for that was like I did talk to him about that he had mentioned it before. But he was like, it didn't go well when I tried it in a scrimmage. It's just a different thing when you're doing it in any kind of game setting versus just practicing it during a practice. It's just very difficult to do. I don't know what they do about it, but they're certainly going to have to figure out something. You know, Bryce Ramsey's not on that roster anymore. Obviously, Orlando Umana, you know, for what all the issues he had, they at least didn't have this. But you made a smart point about the first part of that, too, is it's a big issue for any offense. Don't get me wrong, but one – for. Like this that's so frequently and shotgun so frequently has pre-snap motion and timing is such a big issue. It's screwing up everything timing-wise in changing drives. And, you know, it hasn't cost them a game yet, but that does feel like something that will eventually, if it does not get rectified.
0: No, yeah. I mean, and sometimes when you've got the the high snap, low snap, and you know, Dart has to just jump on it. Well, now you're behind the sticks. And in this offense, I mean, being behind the sticks can be killer especially when you don't have, you know, super dynamic receiver play, as we've seen so far. And, you know, it happened in the second half, you know, two or three times where it was just so low that Dart just had to grab it uh, and then just basically knee it. And now you're in second and 15. You know, if you run the ball and you don't get five yards, it's like third and 13. It's like, what the hell are we doing now? They haven't really been super successful in third and longs in this offense. So it affects it in every single sort of way, really.
1: We'll get right back to Weldon Rodenberg in just a second, but first I wanted to take a break to remind you the podcast is brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg. If you're a Rights subscriber, that's rippywrites.substack.com. You get a free newsletter from me that I'm working on, the Monday one right now as we speak, or I say right now on a Sunday night as we speak, um, and discounted meats. Right now it's a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage just go show greg proof of subscription he'll get you set up with that special then go find your own favorites oxford's so lucky to have a meat shop meat market like lb's all kinds of delicious stuff the weather was cool this last weekend if you weren't at the game you weren't in the grove maybe you're throwing something on the grill hopefully it was lb's and enjoying the weather and watching some great football need to check them out all kinds of fresh sausages seafood i ate some filet burgers and some incredible sausage from lb's this past week it was absolutely unbelievable you need to go join in on the party. LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Weldon Rodenberg. Yeah, it's it's crazy, and I'm curious to see how how that kind of shakes itself out. Um, you know, I don't know if, if Warren gets healthy, it gets any better at all, but we'll, we'll see, and it's certainly something worth monitoring. One other question before we move off the offensive line that I did have was, so when that was announced, and you're right, uh, Pettis did start the game. Acker started at center. I just am curious, what is uh what do you think is the reasoning for moving James inside to guard and going with another freshman tackle and Pettis versus sticking Pettis at guard? I get it's probably something we can't fully answer and it's just something they've noticed in practice or they liked it better. But I do thought it was I thought it was kind of strange that they moved James inside versus just move Acker over and fill in with the freshman at guard. It just seems like tackling in general is a more harder task for younger players, but I don't know. I just thought that was interesting why they did that the
0: way they did. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you're wrong. It's a more difficult position. But, you know, Pettis is legitimately I mean, seven. He, he is a massive human being. And it's really, honestly, encouraging to see him being able to play that position and not only play it, but he was mauling some guys out there. I thought, I thought he played really, really well. And obviously, I haven't watched every single snap on the film and everything. But, you know, they've got two guys that they trust. And, you know, we've told, mentioned this many times, but you don't, play players for no reason. You, you play the guys who you believe are giving you the best chance to win. And I, I think having the continuity of, you know, Jeremy and Nick Broker at guard, where they know they can be successful and play well and then kind of help out the tackles. You know, the younger guys on on the outside is huge. And, you know, you've got to build depth. But at the end of the day, the freshmen are the best players, you know, Pettis is a tackle. Like if he was playing guard, in my opinion, he'd be playing out of position. I think he's just – He's just too athletic at his size to be used at guard, and when you know Jeremy can play the position at a really high level, I think it makes sense in my opinion.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, and I know, um, I, like I know you knew this, but I wasn't like questioning it. I was just mostly curious, like what be no, like, yeah. something like that. You know what I mean? Like I, uh, but that isn't that is an interesting way, and I guess it. uh I guess it also kind of speaks to the trust that they do have in two young tackles to put them out there like that and use them. Like, clearly, you know, they wouldn't have played Pettis there if they didn't think he was quite ready for it. And I thought he played pretty well um, overall. Another incredible game from Quinshawn Judkins. That kid just week after week continues to legitimize um, you know, how interested Ole Miss and Kiffin were him in that famous photo of Kiffin sitting in the stands with the hoodie by himself at a high school game. I believe that's him watching Judkins. That photo makes, I guess, a little more sense now. They uh, yeah. it was weird. They kind of had more success. I don't know if it was a play calling thing. I'm sure it was a mixture of a lot of things. They had a lot more success bottling up Zach Evans than they did Judkins because you had Evans who got not quite as many carries. But I think he ended the game with I had it up a second ago, but he averaged two point six yards a carry. Um, on what I guess that would have been nine carries. Judkins averaged seven point one on fifteen. They just could not bring him down. He hit the second level a couple of times. He is really, really good. They have two good ones, but uh, you know, one shine more than the other on Saturday. And you know that and the defense were the reason they won the game because they were able to run the football. Because you know, if Kentucky had stacked the box and been able to successfully stop them, I don't know if Dart could have won a game with it on his shoulders and everything we just talked about with the receiving core, but another special performance from what it's going to be a superstar at Ole Miss, it seems like.
0: Yeah, he's just ridiculously good. And honestly, today on that run, that's honestly the fastest he's looked too. He's kind of looked almost like he had a little gimp or a little, you know, kind of a knocker or an injury or something the past few games. Um, not not against Kentucky. I mean, he looked full strength, full speed. I mean, he is his vision is just out outrageous. I mean, there's times when he runs into the back of the offensive lineman, sees the hole, makes just a quick jump cut and gets six yards. And he, he has just been remarkable. And we talked about him last week, and you know why on earth you know he he is at Ole Miss and how did Alabama and Auburn didn't recruit him. And I kind of thought about it again after we talked, and then I realized he, he didn't he couldn't go to camps. You know, he he was being right. recruited by everybody, but he couldn't go to anyone's campus. Uh, I mean, they barely had visits in 2021. I mean, he, he really just – you know, Ole Miss just ended up winning out against other people. Uh, he couldn't go to too many places just with the, the years he was being recruited. Uh, I mean, I guess he could have gone a few places last year, but he had already committed to Ole Miss. You know, it was kind of over at that point. He didn't go anywhere. Um, I mean, it's a a blessing. I mean, he has, what, 540 rushing yards through five games so far. I mean, two or three touchdowns per game at this point. It's just incredible. And Evans, I mean, he probably was injured. I think that's at least a part of it. Um, And he played a little bit earlier in the game. But I I think it's kind of been clear that, you know, once the game settles in, they they kind of put in Judkins in there um, to kind of you know, be the bell cow throughout the middle of the game and towards the end. And I, I do think, you know, that Kiffin and the running backs coach, whose name escapes me. Evans fumbling the ball two or three times so yeah. far this year is definitely playing into this. Um, you know, he's obviously an insanely talented uh, – I mean, he's ridiculously good. I mean, he is really, really good. But, I mean, there's that's always in the back of running back coaches' minds. You know, this is like the first game – that he hasn't tumbled, uh, and that's that's important to think about as well. And then, obviously, with Bentley out, you know, Judkins is the guy, and he's sure as hell proving it. the
1: uh, The running backs coach, just for uh, your uh, the information of the listeners out there, is the immortal Derek Nix, um, who will be at Ole Miss through 2065. He's the wide receivers coach. Oh, I thought he got moved to running backs. Maybe he is not the running backs
0: coach. No, that's no they I mean. brought in the, they brought in the guy from Houston. I just can't remember his name.
1: That's right. I uh, never mind. Just complete false alarm. But that was another. off awesome <laughs> I had, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to work oh, in the immortal Derek Nix reference. Okay, so I have a question for you regarding some of this is that with the way they've struggled in the vertical passing game sometimes, I believe if I have this correct, both Judkins and Evans only have three receptions this year. We haven't seen a lot of working them out of the backfield Um, I don't think they have more than two in a single game. Are you surprised we have not seen more of that to try to supplement some offense where the vertical passing game has been lacking a little bit? Look, some of that is them being vanilla against inferior opponents. Some of that is kind of like what you saw in the second half against Troy. They were just trying to work on the passing game and get guys reps and get consistent. But now as you get into the teeth of the schedule and you don't have any more games like that, do you think we'll see more of that? Are they capable pass catchers? They seem competent. but uh, I don't know. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that aspect of it because you haven't seen it a lot.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think they thought Bentley, and I do think they still think Bentley is the guy that's the most capable pass catcher out of the group, and uh, I believe that to be the case. Evans, I mean, I only remember him. You know, He's caught a, a few balls. He dropped a screen against Georgia Tech that probably would have gone for 70 yards. Uh, Judkins, I don't really know his abilities as a pass as a pass catcher i I don't really feel like I remember him seeing you know get the ball go his way through the air many times. Uh, I think you might see more of it in the screen game and you kind of check downs but uh I think they're they're both pretty good blockers and a lot of times in a lot of these route concepts you know they're kind of in there as an extra blocker uh especially you know with the tight ends kind of struggling in that department so I, I think you'll see more of it but I honestly I'm not even sure what they think of their own backs as pass catchers
1: well that's another interesting piece of it I never thought about the pass catching element with Bentley because that was something that was obvious when he did land I was trying to get a read on okay who's this guy who is this kid and one of the things that uh, a couple of the people I was talking to mentioned was pretty good pass catcher versus out of the backfield they don't have him right I I don't know what exactly his injury is. I don't want to speculate. I heard a couple of things, but certainly not enough to just throw it out there on the podcast, but that, you know, they don't have him out there. And I wonder how different the offense would have looked if they did, because that certainly seems like something they could use um, as they kind of work out the kinks in the vertical passing game, bouncing around to a couple of topics before we kind of get out of here and hit some sec stuff is just Ole Miss was really, really good on defense. And I know we talked about that at the first piece of this show, but the defense, coupled with some of the special team stuff. Look, I know they had, couldn't tackle Barry and Brown on the kickoffs, but they got a safety because Jonathan Cruz pinned Kentucky back on the two-yard line. He had another punt where they pinned him inside the ten. This is a team. I don't know what their ceiling is, but with the way they play defense and the way they've been on special teams for the most part, this is a team that you can win a lot of games doing that. Right? Good teams do both of those things very well, and Ole Miss is clearly doing it. And not to mention the you know the fifty-three yarder, fifty-four yarder, the kid knocked home. You know, the, I guess my point being is they're so good defensively. They're pretty clean on special teams for the most part. That's going to carry them a long way. I don't know what the ceiling is because I'd like to see what dart becomes and what this offense is. But I think it's just worth reiterating and pointing out that, you know, this is a team that's becoming a good, consistent program that does the things that good teams do to win games, particularly at home. And I think that's evidence in their home record.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess – the only way to really talk about how good they've been and what they can be is, you know, what's coming ahead. And, I mean, it, it's there for them. I mean, there's really no way to say it without kind of having, you know, it looks a small smirk on your face, but it's there. <laughs>
1: it really is. It,
0: it is. it is there for them. Um, and, you know, defense and running game travels. They've got some road games coming up. Uh, I mean – Personally, I think Vanderbilt's not I – mean, they're not good, but they're not terrible. They better show up, you know, and, and play them well. I mean, you saw the line is, is, is only 19. I think that's a classic letdown on the road in, in a sleepy environment. But um, after that, you've got Auburn, who is, you know, capable of a dead cat bounce at any time. They've got talent. I will never pencil it in as a W, though it should be, because for some reason Ole Miss doesn't beat Auburn. Um, and then you're going to Death Valley. <laughs> And we have, we have seen this story many a times. Right? <laughs> we have. What happens when these two teams play. And when Ole Miss is really good and has a lot of hope and LSU is not as good and has nothing to play for, they end up ruining it. And I, I think that collision is coming at an interesting point in the season for both teams. Um, I, that's, that is going to be the biggest game of in a long time for Ole Miss. I think, I think they're going to win these next two. I think they might win them handily. And then it's can they get through the chaos storm of bullshit that that Valley can be in games like this. Um, And, you know, we don't know what that team's going to be like because, you know, they somehow beat Auburn yesterday, a pretty resilient win. I'll give them that, but also a win that was basically handed to them by their former receiver and and Robbie Ashford. Uh, But they've got Tennessee and Florida, I believe, back to back in the next two weeks. Um, before they play Ole miss so i mean those are two really good teams that you know you don't know if they you know they lose one or two of those how they're going to be but it's 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 there for this team and, and it's kind of exciting but it's also you want to temper it a little bit <laughs> um, but like you said that's that's because of this defense and what they can do day in day out there's no doubt that that side of the ball is going to play well
1: yeah, you you kind of led me right to where I was going next, and the reason for asking that is like what you know, what is the ceiling because it looks like kind of a gettable SEC West. Look, Alabama, I don't know what to make of them. That game got weird yesterday, but you know, heading into the week, I certainly was not ready to write them off just because they played a close game in a road environment at 11 a.m. at Texas. But everyone else, you look around, A uh, and M. We'll get to them in a second. Look, I mean. They look like they almost gave up states, what
0: they do, what they do. I don't know. It's good.
1: Is. The point states, is not- states exactly
0: what we thought they were. Yeah. States, I think that's whenever a- they played LSU and we talked about, we're like, I'm not sure the better team won that game. Uh, it's because I'm not necessarily sure that did. Uh, I think state's are pretty, pretty good football. team.
1: Right. And LSU's on a rebuild. So it is all out there for them. And it's kind it's of all there. intriguing to think about, but again, you do want to temper it because I don't think you, with you know, the way the game played out yesterday, I don't think you also left there thinking that, wow, like whoa, this team, you know, is a you know fringing juggernaut or anything like that. But they did shoot, prove enough, they won a huge game, and it is out there for them. And I'm just kind of curious of what their ceiling actually is. You know, we talked about this a little bit after the tech game, but maybe I think we got to around the nine win mark. Would yesterday be the first time you would be? open to hearing the thought of 10 wins, because that's kind of the way I thought about it as I was thinking about it a little bit more this morning. Do I think Ole Miss will go? What is that would be five and two the rest of the way? I don't know, but I'm also not counting them out in any game they play. And that's kind of, I think, where I got to as we kind of revisit this team's ceiling on a weekly basis.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the two best teams they play throughout the rest of the season, in my opinion, the two best teams, they have them at home it's it's getting those wins on the road i don't think arkansas is better than mississippi state i don't think a&m clearly is not and then lsu i mean they're kind of a jekyll and hyde team just depends who shows up and you know what Daniels' situation is and then you know i yeah i mean i can i can see i can get there i think that's really why this kentucky game show important from not obviously just winning the game in general but just Opening this door for this to be a possibility of a, a really, really special season. When you saw the AM was kind of down, when you saw that Auburn is basically, you know, they're basically done from a, you know, any sort of relevancy. Um, Arkansas, I think their, you know, just competitive spirit has just been ripped out of their chest. And I don't know what that team's gonna react to. And it sounds like KJ Jefferson's a little hurt. Then you have Alabama who has looked mortal, though still incredibly good, but I mean, there's a situation that we might hear tonight or tomorrow where Bryce Young has played his last snap in Alabama because we don't know what that shoulder injury is, but there's some, some small talk that it's it's not not great. Um, so yeah, I mean, like I said, you can't say it without a small smirk smirk on your face. But you know, Atlanta is just kind of staring you in, in the face at this point. And the first step was beating Kentucky. The next step is showing you're a really good team and beating two teams you should beat. And then you get to the four game stretch that'll, you know, every single game will decide the future.
1: Yeah, no, you're that's, I think that is extremely well put and it's going to shape up for an entertaining and a fascinating fall. Kind of last thing as we wrap up here on the, on the, this game portion of it, how good do you think Kentucky is leaving that game? Cause I wasn't sure. I knew they had a good roster. I knew they had a chance to be a top you know 15 top 10 potentially team this year. Leaving this game, I, I don't necessarily know where I fall. Like, you know, as you grade this win, and there's no way to know because college football is becoming such a weird week-to-week results. Um, you know, right. You're right. More and more of them. You know, there's different – so many different factors that go into it than maybe we gave it credit for five years ago. But I, I say all of that just to ask, how good do you think Kentucky is? How good do you think this win will stack up seven weeks from now, let's say?
0: Uh, I mean, I think they're a very good team. I don't think they are a great team. Um, But when you have a football team that has a defense that is as well structured as they are and as talented as some of the guys on that team are um, with a running game, that's – I mean, Rodriguez is a beast. I know the offensive line is not great. but And then a quarterback that's probably going to be taking the first round. I mean, you've got a huge ceiling. Um, I I think they're a really good football team. I, I think that there's a chance that they may only lose one more game this season. Um, but they make a lot of mistakes. They made a lot of boneheaded plays. They their special teams, with the exception of Barry and Brown just being a freak, were really poor. Um, but at the end of the day, they were top ten for a reason. You know, no one goes into the swamp, and you know they, they kind of handled Florida in the second half of that game. And that's not easy. And that Florida team, though, it's not their best, and that's a it's a dangerous team. And their the history is was not on Kentucky's side for the majority of. Of that rivalry so yeah i think they're, i think they're a good team i'm not sure they're a great team but i think they have the pieces to continue to win a lot of games i think this win will continue to look better i, I don't see them falling apart uh anytime soon
1: um yeah it, it then, i guess the other piece of it we'd be uh we'd probably be done not doing it justice if after the huge um attendance conversation we had last week just to touch on it a bit that was a sellout i was there um you know for what that environment can be i I thought it was pretty electric there were a ton of people there the student section filled up now i think some of that was aided this is not necessarily taking credit away from it, but I do think the stadium kind of looked electric because Kentucky brought a ton of people too. They filled up all of the visiting sections and some splotches where you look like they just kind of bought up some tickets, even though it's not necessarily the away section. But, you know, a week after we had this huge attendance talk and all of that, that kind of, you know, by the end of the week got nauseating, it was a good environment. They did show up and, you know, they deserve. You deserve some credit for that because it is at 11 a.m. You know, at 3 p.m., if they couldn't have filled it up, I'd have been like, hey, what's the issue here? But it was a good environment. Right. To play, and I think it did help them sometimes, despite it not being the loudest place to play.
0: Yeah, so I, I saw a lot of people, like, complaining about Kentucky, you know, being able to get that many people in the stadium and, and, and all that. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a new era of college football. Kentucky's really, really good. They have not been to Oxford, Mississippi in 12 years. And, you know, stu- season tickets and people going to games, yeah, it's still not high. You can do that to stadiums now. I remember, you know, obviously you were Georgia going to Notre Dame. I mean, I can't remember the last time. That was three or four years ago. And Georgia brought 25,000 people into that stadium. I mean, they had an entire section of it when Jacob Beesman that beat them. Um you know, but then it works the opposite way. It's when good teams travel, fans are willing to pay extra money to buy out some of the seats that aren't there. It's not necessarily an Ole Miss issue. I remember last year, Ole Miss is really good. They're playing LSU, and LSU is maybe the best traveling fan base in the country, and I'm not saying that biased. They're one of the biggest fan bases, and they're, it's incredible what they will go to some of these games. They didn't fill half the sections, So, it, you know, it's a combination of just a really good team with a fan base that is like really grown, coming to play a place that they haven't played in 10 years, they're willing to spend the money and buy out some of the tickets. You know, it's not necessarily an oldness issue. And, you know, the, the place looked great. The stripe out looked great on TV, looked packed, sounded loud. I mean, you can only ask for that. I, I thought it was a good environment.
1: Yeah, it, it was. And th- you're right. It's not unique to Ole Miss, but Ole Miss's issue is unique from some of the other ones based on all the reasons that we talked about last week that we don't necessarily Correct. need to yeah. asked, But you got to give them a, you know, a lot of student section shaming. Um, you know, they were so ready to go. I saw some videos of them fighting one another. A lot of pledge fights. Look like maybe some yep. between the uh Kai size and Kappa SIGs. I just made two up. Um, I don't actually have any idea if that was the case, but it was a uh raucous environment for uh, an 11 a.m. game, that is for sure. Let's uh let's bounce on the SEC a little bit before we get out of here. I think we covered everything from that win. I was just going through the notes. The only other one I had was I thought DeAndre Prince played a really good game, um, and he's just turned yeah. into a really good player. I just had that written down. Um, and it seems like he's matured a lot as well. He made two really important pass breakups that could have gone for huge games and really changed the course of that game. And that was, you know, as I looked through the miscellaneous piece of it, I just had written down DeAndre Prince good. So that's what we're doing when we're taking notes over here.
0: Good. Yeah. He's got incredible ball skills. I, I think it's a unique ability and it's really the thing that separates, you know, average DDs from really good ones. It's his ability to, to run with receivers, get his head around, find the ball and make a play on it. I mean, that's, Something that not a lot of guys can do, uh, and he, he's been incredible about that. Um, I think it's pretty clear that he and Igbinoson are the two guys on the outside at this point. Uh, he, at Miles Battle just has not been playing as much quarter, at least from what I've seen in some of these games. So I feel like it's it's those two, and uh, those are two pretty good ones. Uh, there were some incredibly, I mean, they were passing interference or holding, but like it's like the refs were you know, staring them down with binoculars and some yes. of the holding calls they Something had. on well, my third downs, I mean, crucial plays of the game kind of like, really? Like, that's what we're going to – you know, we're looking that close at it. But I thought those two uh, – going up against, like, two pretty damn good receivers and both true freshmen on Kentucky's side, I thought they, they handled it really well.
1: Let's look around the SEC a little bit as uh, we kind of covered everything from what was a massive win for Ole Miss. And it's going to be a really entertaining, you know, last seven weeks. And I'm super, uh, I'm definitely looking forward to it myself. Where do you want to start? Should we start by just ripping on A&M like everyone else has for the last three weeks? Um, I didn't catch a ton of this game. I was hanging out with some friends none of it. Yeah. In, in the Grove. But I mean, what do you do? You, you can't fire him. We talked about the the bold brain move of giving him that random raise when you're bidding against nobody uh, earlier this year, what what, what do That's you sad. do with this? This has to be a little bit of a cautionary tale. And you know, in college football, we talk about job security being a farce, and as the money keeps getting greater and greater and greater, these guys aren't getting three, four years to build a program anymore. You know, is this a cautionary tale against just handing anyone? You know, even a guy that had a national championship like Jimbo Fisher a blank check and a 10-year contract because you just never know how this is going to work and you set yourself up. I get some of it's just what the market demands, but that didn't really demand it at the time and certainly the Rays didn't. What do you make of this? What do they do? I I was reading stuff about it looked like they
0: quit yesterday. I mean, you would think that ADs and and departments would have learned their lesson from this contract and seeing how it's playing out, but they absolutely have not, You know, i.e., Mel Tucker and Mario Cristobal. I mean, those guys got the same, same contract, if, if not even bigger in some circumstances. Um, and, you know, of course, now there's the good side of that. You know, Lincoln Riley has a pretty massive contract. I think that's going to play out just fine. And, you know, Brian Kelly's a similar contract. That's kind of a wait and see mode. But I, I feel pretty confident that he's slowly but surely getting that place to where it needs to be. Um, I it's It's tough. I mean, it's like the worst kind of football to really bring your team down. You have an offense that's probably about eight years old um, with quarterbacks that are forced to make really difficult reads. And if you don't have Jameis Winston, it just doesn't work that well. Um, And that's been pretty clear. And I think the, the sample size has been large enough to kind of understand that's where it's been. And I still think they're incredibly athletic and good on defense. But if your offense is complete shit and your defense is out in the field for as many plays as AM has been some of these games. I mean, they're just gonna get tired out over and over and over again. So it doesn't really matter how talented you are because your offense is so terrible that you may you have to put the entire team on your back and they are just they look exhausted. I'm not sure they quit, but I did watch like at least a, a little bit of that fourth quarter. Um, and, and they just look exhausted. And then you know, just to add on top of that is their special teams suck too. So, I mean, it's just like a, a complete, you know, disaster over there. They can't fire him, and they're not going to. Uh, but, yeah, it does not look good.
1: No, it uh, it certainly does not. Um, and credit to Mississippi State. You know, the one thing that surprised me about that game was, I think, in Neil's picks, which I'm just terrible at this year, I think I thought I, I picked A&M mostly kind of going out on a limb, but I also didn't think they would have as much trouble with DJ against the air raid with DJ Durkin. But that you know, some of that's probably to your point um, about the fact that they're just on the field so much, they get tired out. So that's a, uh, that's a tough one for Jimbo to uh, swallow. And the road doesn't really get much easier for them either. Um, You know, if they'd somehow found a way to screw up that Miami game, they got a little lucky in the Arkansas game it could look even worse than it does right now. And they're clearly not a contender in the West. Let's go to Arkansas no. and Alabama. Kind of a weird game in this one. Alabama comes out and blitzkriegs them, 28-0. Bryce Young gets hurt. Arkansas climbs back in the game very quickly. And then all of a sudden, Arkansas's defensive issues, particularly in the second level, got, seemed to surface. And Alabama just ended up going away with it. This was like 28-23 at one point after being 28 nothing, And then the game finished forty-nine oh, yeah. twenty-six. 49-26. What a bizarre ball game.
0: No, it got it got real dicey there until uh, Jalen Milrow ripped off like a sixty five yard, just ridiculous run. I mean, he just outran every single player on Arkansas's defense. Um, that was a weird game. I-, I think Arkansas has got to be just mentally just exhausted. I mean, the A and M game was just such a heartbreaker for them, and then this Alabama game, you clearly there was a hangover from that. And then they get back in it thanks to Young getting hurt and Milro taking some time to to get adjusting to the game and, you know, making some some gutsy calls. And then, you know, they just get just their back broken again on third and long with Milro going to score. And then it kind of just that game was over after that. And, um, so yeah, I mean it's that's tough for the Hogs. I, I think they're their season is taking a completely different turn in just two weeks, which is can happen in the SEC. I mean, think it's why it's such a difficult conference. Uh, and on the Alabama side, I, I thought we were going to get introduced to the Ty Simpson show. Um, that did not happen. I guess he went with the older guy who and Miller I remember him from from high school. He freak, complete freak. I, I don't think he's developed as a passer like, you know, obviously not like Bryce Young, but athletically that, that there's he is one of very few. Is really really special athlete, so they're not dead without Young, but they are definitely a different football team without him. So, yeah, but they're because, still I mean, talented.
1: They are very still talented. But to your point, like he kind of won them the Texas game, Young, when everything else was going bad, and I, you know, that's right. a massive massive loss as they hit the teeth of their SEC schedule again. I don't know what the severity of the injury is. You mentioned it being a shoulder thing, and there being some chatter about it not being very good. That's a Fascinating stuff. I was going to ask him and you answered the question for me, but that, I felt like that was the first time in, I don't know, a decade that I didn't know who Alabama's backup quarterback was because they just seemed to have so many studs and so many options. I didn't know who they were going to go with. I just assumed it'd be Ty Simpson. I didn't really necessarily know much about this kid. Um, I thought you know, he played okay for coming in off cold off the bench and really just made plays with his feet, but that's uh, that's certainly something to monitor going forward and is going to change the calculus of how Alabama operates offensively and then you nailed the Arkansas side of it I don't really have much to add they just seem kind of like a mentally broken team at this point um you know don't rebound that's still going to be a tough one come November for Ole Miss to go up there and play oh don't it definitely
0: it. is that, it that's got a house of game
1: feeling to it right um but yeah. very possible I think they were just probably mentally exhausted after last week. Well, I have no idea what to do with Georgia-Missouri. I watched this second half trying to figure out how the score got to the way it was in the first half. This made no sense. Do you have anything to add to this? I don't – how does that happen? I mean, they Missouri really almost won that game, and you could argue kind of coulda, shoulda, woulda um, in a lot of senses
0: there. That was a bizarre result. Yeah, I have no idea. I really – I didn't get to watch a whole lot of that game. I was at an engagement party that had the LSU game on. Um, but we kind of turned it on towards the end when Georgia started milking it. I have no idea how that happened. I mean, the, the talent gap between those two teams is so, you know, drastic. Um, I, I think Georgia is, is entering that kind of rat poison territory and maybe Kirby and that crew is really struggling to get the guys to understand that no matter what happens when you go on the road in the sec, I mean, it's, it's still difficult to win. I don't care who you're playing. Um, I think they'll bounce back pretty, pretty heavily in the next coming weeks because talent-wise they're better than everybody. Uh, but I think mentally that team has to still kind of grow in Alabama and realize that they have this massive target that some of these kids that are younger than they are playing probably don't fully understand
1: just a weird one without having to watch the full game i just don't really know they outgained them by an over 200 yards they committed fewer penalties than missouri did they averaged 4.7 yards rush now granted that might be part of it i know that doesn't sound it's a true.
0: classic it's a classic example of what happens when you kick field goals instead of going for it going to win the game missouri kicked field goals the entire game they didn't go for it that you don't win games as an underdog against a more talented team when you do that that that's why people play the analytics especially as an underdog
1: um, hitting the LSU Auburn one, the one you did have on at the engagement party. Are you surprised Brian Harson is still the head coach as of you speak? I say, I think he is. I didn't check Twitter in like an hour, but my god.
0: Um, uh, I mean, I did see on Twitter that Wisconsin fired their coach while we were while we were recording, so that's kind of a crazy deal. That um, is wild. 67 I, and 21. I did not expect, yeah, I, I didn't expect that before Brian Harson getting fired. Yeah, I'm a little surprised he's still there. Uh, at the same time, it's like What's the point? I mean, there's there's pros and cons to being in the market earlier than other teams, but they're not the only one in the market. And I'm sure they're reaching out through intermediaries and you know, maybe AJ Karen's, you know, BS was true they already told him he's out at the end of the season. I don't know. I mean, I think they had a really great game plan. You know, I, I thought they they were playing a pretty much perfect game and then you know, they just decided they were just gonna hand LSU the ball like on four stretches. And uh, then LSU ended up winning the game. LSU wise, um, that offense is is tough to watch. It Jaden Daniels is. I mean, he has the ability when he kind of you know has his feet set to to throw a pretty a pretty ball. Um, but he he runs around a lot. The offensive line you know, they're starting two true freshmen, <laughs> which is even crazier than Ole Miss with two redshirt freshmen. Um, and they're they're learning real quick what the SEC is like. Even though they're they're definitely going to be really talented players, you could see it on some plays, and you miss it on others. Um, they have like no running game. Basically, Emory had a pretty big run, but they've been starting a uh, a walk on. Uh, their other guy got hurt. Uh, defensively, that's still a really good football team. They're they're incredibly athletic. Uh, but that's not the DBs you've seen from LSU in the past. You know, they're, they're not bad, but they're not they're not DBU caliber, what they've had first-round draft picks, you know, superstars back there. They, they, there's, there's, you know, plays to be made on those guys where usually there is just not. Um, I mean, they're well-coached, and that's why they won the game. It's because they're well-coached, whereas Auburn is just really, really poorly coached. Um, but I don't think they're a great team.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm not going to form a hard opinion on Brian Kelly in year one. They're a spunky team. They have some fight. They seem to enjoy playing for him in year one. You've just perfectly outlined the offensive situation. One of those things are like, how many wins can they get to? And like, what does this look like? But I don't feel like I can have a hard opinion on Kelly and what he's doing at that program until next year minimum. It just felt like, not that this team was thrown together, but they didn't have a great answer at quarterback. And he had to hit the portal super hard, which you haven't seen LSU do a lot. Um, you know, when they're good, I know that's kind of a newer aspect, but I just feel like they're, you know, they're inspired, I guess, you know, which is, you know, not everyone can say that certainly the, uh, the Aggies weren't, um, among others. I just don't know what to make of them. Whereas with Auburn, sure. I have a stat to throw out for you that I saw last night. I clearly did not come up with this myself, but, um, I saw this, uh, when I was reading something this morning, um, last eight, uh, games against FBS competition, excuse me, power five competition. In the second half, they have scored a combined 18 points in their last eight games in the second half against Power 5. It's all coaching.
0: It's that all coaching. Tremendous. It's lack of adjustments. It's it's just having no answers is what that is. And that's what Auburn has been in, like, any important game. I mean, Missouri gave it to them, and then they just gave LSU that game. I mean, really just – literally handed them the ball. I mean, the, the wide receiver – Pat, I mean, double pass where the Coy Moore, the former LSU receiver who got a lot of attention for saying he was better than Butte, um, which was hilarious. Um, I mean, he just threw the ball to LSU, just threw it to him. And then the next possession, he catches the ball and then Greg Brooks just takes it from him. <laughs> yeah. It was so embarrassing. I mean, they, they, Auburn had that game. They just, I mean, legitimately, there's no other word to say, just gave the game to LSU.
1: That's uh They really did. Let's. Uh, I think that was everything SEC-wise. Let's get to the fastest-growing segment. Brief soccer corner before we uh, let you go and get putting your house together. Um, what do we have going on? Are they still mourning the Queen? Do we have games? Do we have action? Please tell me that they're not still on a Queen-related pause. Uh, we had
0: games. We had action. This morning I woke up at 8 to watch City play United before I watched the Saints lose in epic, heartbreaking fashion over at Tottenham Stadium, by the way um and it's a double city, whammy for
1: you 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 watch oh, your yeah. nfl team lose
0: in england and then you watch that too well it's fun because you know, city was up 4-0 at halftime so i actually didn't have to watch the rest of the game once the saints started 30 minutes later so there actually was no big deal um i know we kind of talk about this sometimes and i i always like to say it but there's there's been so few athletes in the world Throughout my lifetime where it's like when those guys are on, it's must watch television. You know, it's when Seth Curry kind of came into his deal. It was like when Seth Curry's on, you're watching, you know, Tiger Woods on a Sunday. People are watching LeBron James. You know, we kind of take for granted in some of his prime years how ridiculous he was. You know, Mahomes in his early years, you know, he was like, wow, like this guy is just different. The guy that's playing striker for Man City, Erling Holland, is is officially must-watch television. He has he's the quickest in Premier League history to three hat tricks in the season with eight games. It took uh, Michael Keane, I think, or Robbie Keane, or whoever it took him forty-eight. Uh, he is on pace to break the Premier League goal record in a season at sixty-six. Last year, the high, the I think, uh, I think Mo Salah had twenty-three goals last year. And Holland is on pace for 66. Good lord, he is—he he is, he is a freak of nature. He's a robot. He is six four and runs like a deer. Is as coordinated and talented. I mean, he's insane to watch. And he today, he had a hat trick in about six minutes. It, I've never seen anything like it. Truly, he is just a unicorn out there beating the shit out of some of the best players and best clubs in the world. Uh, it's hard to really explain or give a great, you know, analogy to it, but it's, I mean, he is a tour de force. It's amazing.
1: As I look through the standings here um, again, I know you taught me last year that it is very early and this changes a lot and the teams look so much different. It's one of the wild things about European football to me that you can just have a team be completely different two months later, but uh, you do have Arsenal at the top. They have a one point lead through uh, eight matches here. Um, you know, I know you keep telling me Manchester City's the best team. I have no reason not to believe that, but every time I open the standings, we got someone else in first place. Is this just Man City playing with its food before they just go for the kill shot, or uh, has your thoughts changed on who can actually win this league?
0: No, nothing about my thoughts have changed at all. I think Arsenal, you have to give them credit. You know, they've just been incredibly consistent. Uh, the coach at, at Arsenal, Arteta, he played in Arsenal, but he coached under Guardiola at City for a few years, so he – He's tried, like, slowly but surely to kind of instill that kind of mindset and playing style there, and they've, you know, made some great acquisitions, and they, they've just been clutched, you know, that they beat their rival Tottenham 3-1 in kind of an ass-beating fashion with a kind of a weird red card in the middle of the game, so that it kind of makes things squirrely, but the fact of the matter is they've won almost every game they've played this year, and that's not easy in the best league in the world. Uh, at the end of the day, though, it, I don't think it's going to be close. I think City will end up winning this thing probably. 10 by 10 or 15 points, but you are right. It is still very early.
1: Biggest surprise we looked at uh that I was looked toward the top of the standings. We may have talked about this already. I can't remember which one, but you have Brighton in fourth. Is that just a product of the season being early? Are they pretty good? That's uh that is not where they've usually rained, it does not seem like.
0: No, I, mean, I think they're pretty good. I mean they they really should have beaten Liverpool Saturday morning. They were up two nil and end up kind of choking that away for just to try to tie them. Uh, they they're really good. They they've got a new coach after their coach left for Chelsea, which we talked about last. That's time.
1: right. This is who that team was. That blew my Yeah,
0: and yeah, and I mean they're still. I mean they're still chugging along. in Chelsea, they barely won uh, at Crystal Palace, so they're they're kind of a, in a transition phase. But you now Brighton's really good. They've got just got really solid recruitment and like just a lot of really really good players in that team.
1: Um, I just kind of bouncing around here, looking at it. Lead sitting there solidly in 12th. Our, our friend Saudi castle United is uh, in seventh. Uh, They just seem to be lurking. I don't know if they will be in the mix for anything significant. They're lurking. They're lurking lurking. Yeah, I'd like for them learning. to go use some more blood money to buy some other coach or something. <laughs> I need more news. I feel like I haven't heard much from Saudi Castle this year. And then lastly, um, I look at the bottom and see, uh, was it, Lee Leicester, however you say it. But that's not what stands out. is the fact that Wolverhampton has scored three goals this year. Do fans get a refund at a certain point? How how does that happen?
0: I think they just fired their manager, actually. Sacked like him. So we already have like another Sacked him. Sacked him, yeah. I know so. uh, no, they're, ter- they're terrible. They're, they're going down, I would imagine, which is – kind of weird cuz they're they're not like just you know team wise they have talent uh, but they they they're a complete shit show
1: would you, you not like fun for the watch last thing i had the last would you like for the saints to go pick up chelsea's manager and try him out um maybe instead of Dennis Allen i know that's not going great so far do you think we could do the reverse ted lasso would you
0: be a fan <laughs> Last year was at the game. Maybe they should bring him that. back to this, back to the states to coach the Saints. Um, you know, I always forget that Dennis Allen is an Aggie, and that kind of makes a lot of sense for how this team has played so far early in the season. I mean, it, it's really as simple as this: is Saints have the most penalties against them, which is you know an NFL special, and they had the most turnovers. So you're, I don't care how good you are, uh, they're not good enough to come overcome that, and they have clearly shown that so far. I'm not, this season's not dead in my opinion, but it's, it's creeping there quickly. And it always just amazing me. Like I just don't know what Dennis Allen has done to, to, to earn and show. I mean, the defense has been amazing for the saints over the past few years, but like being the head coach is completely different. And, you know, it's He's such an offensively is terrible in Oakland. Now I, second chances are warranted, you know, in, in NFL, they love giving fired white coaches a second chance. Um, and it just it kind of like amazes me. It's like the Saints interviewed Eric me for you know six hours, eight hours, like just you know decided that you know we don't want to be dynamic on offense. You we know we're we're going to go the other direction. Actually, Eric, thank you. Uh, it, it's it's showing up. I mean, they, they look lifeless, so it's a little frustrating.
1: This has been the fastest-growing segment in American soil with an American football twist to it at the end. He is Weldon Rodenberg. I appreciate your time. We'll holler at you next week, and uh, go set up your house. Thanks, man. All right, that is our show. If you made it to the end, I really appreciate you making this podcast a part of your day. As always, as it feels like we're kind of entering the uh, full – Full-on sprint of the season. First real opponent Ole Miss played. Huge win. I enjoyed breaking it down with Weldon, and it's going to set up for an incredibly exciting fall, and I cannot wait for uh, to dive in over the next eight, nine weeks with all the folks out there listening. Y'all have a great start to the week. We'll be back with something in the midweek. Probably another uh, checking in with Nick Broker again. Uh, maybe a Vandy preview. We'll see. And then uh, fresh cuts on Friday. Y'all have a great start to the week.